Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's show, fund manager Kelly Marr from Sage Capital tells us what are the stocks she likes right now and why. And then Aiken Investment Management's Charlie Aiken says, here are the three overseas stocks that should be in everyone's portfolio. Morgan's Chief Economist Michael Knox explains why he thinks the Oz dollar goes over 80 US cents again this financial year. And the founder of Century 21, Charles Tarby, reveals property price rises are slowing down, so holding out for lower, better prices might be a good idea for disappointed would-be buyers who keep missing out. That's the show. Let's kick off with Kelly Ma from Sage Capital. Well, joining us now is Kelly Ma, who's Portfolio Manager at Sage Capital. Kelly, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, Kelly, for people who don't know about Sage Capital's you know, great track record, tell us what the company does. Um, so, Peter, we've been going, Sage Capital has been going for two years now, um, uh, but our strategy has been um, going for about 15 years. And we're Australian Equities long short equities manager um, and we uh, have two investment styles that blend together quite uniquely we use um, a quant uh, process to pick stocks as well as a sort of traditional bottom-up fundamental um, research analysis approach to pick stocks and then uh, we take the best ideas from those two processes and form them into a portfolio that um, is uh, aimed to be able to perform throughout all the market cycles. So we, I guess the other thing about Sage is we're really uh, focused on risk control. So when we put our best stock ideas together, we're really trying to as well um, hedge out X factor, unpredictable economic shocks and macro risks. So we like to think of ourselves as the sleep at night fund, I guess. Yeah. So the coronavirus crash, that was a real thing from um, the, um, the left field. How, yes. how did the, the fund um, suffer that particular period? So uh, the other thing about our style is we are quite um, agile. And so when that all happened, we were closely watching the numbers out of China and starting to get a little bit concerned. And um, so quite early on, we, 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 minimum, we, we turned down the quant signal side of the process and really focused more on fundamental because quant's very good at uh, looking back in history and historical patterns, but it's not the best at picking turning points. And so um, that's when our fundamental uh, approach really kicked in and we're on the phone to, um, you know, companies like Fisher and Paykel saying, hey, uh, what are you seeing in China? You know, um, and we were getting feedback from the travel companies as well, like things are actually not looking so good. And so we actually were quite um, quick to, you know, I guess, sell our, some of our travel stocks, buy up supermarkets and um, buy up. Fisher and Paykel um, with the ventilators and things like that. So it worked quite well being agile as well. That's the beauty of our process as well. Okay. So when you do a, a long position, how long are we talking about? What kind of time period do you, do you look at to try and make money? So we, I guess we have two buckets, I suppose, of stocks that we think about. We have like longer term holdings that we really sort of see the long-term um, 
growth trajectory and we're, we're willing to sort of trade around the edges but we'll tend to hold those stocks over the long term and um, you know, a company that fits into that description would be um, ResMed, which we, we see as a, a really good long-term global growth story. Um, it's benefited from COVID, but also it has a lot of other um, growth opportunities available to it. And more recently, it's had a major product recall from its key competitor. Uh, and so it's basically got the market to itself essentially for the next year. And so that was unexpected, but um, uh, you know, good companies tend to be able to uh, capitalize on opportunities. And we're really uh, bullish on, on ResMed's ability to do that. And I've noticed over the years, uh, Kelly, I'm sure you have too, and just about every time the market picks on ResMed, they always prove the market wrong. It's a, bit, it's a perfect time to buy ResMed when the market wants to smash it, buy it at the low and That's exactly, prove the market wrong. Exactly right, Peter. I think one, one, uh, one of my investment personal investment philosophies is that good companies, more often than not, will surprise you on the upside. Mm -hmm. um, poor quality companies the opposite. So I always try to give a company that has, you know, all the hallmarks of a quality company and a great management team and a good track record, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it pays off and certainly has with ResMed. I know a couple of years ago, every time JB Hi-Fi went down to the low 20s, it was the best buy of all time because Richard Murray and his team always proved the market wrong. Yes, absolutely. And you look back at a company like Cochlear um, when they had a product recall that, uh, yeah, you would have made good money buying that as well. So, um, yeah. Okay. So tell us what's the latest company that you guys have um, selected as being uh, looking like really good value at this point in time? Um, well, there's a, there's a few. We, we've had we've had quite of our long positions in the portfolio for some time. And so um, we're, we're constantly adjusting our portfolio to those, um, you know, depending on what's about value nuances and valuation. Um, one company that um, we've recently added to um, would be uh, corporate travel. Um, we still really like that story. Um, we've been there for a long time in, uh, as, a, as a long, and, but we have you know, added to that position because we see real potential in um, the acquisition they made in the US. And also we're seeing the US is really, the reopening is happening. People are traveling again. Um, the latest weekend travel was um, almost back at pre-COVID levels. And that's leisure, but you know, corporate will follow. I think after after a summer of everyone travelling around and getting it out of their system, I think come September, um, their business travel will be will be back, um, not to pre-COVID levels, but uh, it, it it will be. Um, I think uh, we're going to see a sharp recovery and people picking up uh, those meetings that they've missed for the last eighteen months or so. And the, and the thing is, this um, the whole travel sector should be um, should benefit from the vaccination rate so if we start seeing a, a, a big chunk of australia vaccinated by christmas you expect 2022 to be a much better year for business travel and therefore a company like corporate travel absolutely um, but the thing with corporate travel which is actually quite interesting to your point when stocks get sold off that 
the company is now only 30% Australia um, and 70% of their revenue is offshore, mainly um, in the UK and Europe and the US. And so they're the company, they're, they're the countries that have, uh, they're way ahead of us now with vaccinations. They're the ones that are way ahead of us with business travel. I, I, uh, I texted a friend of mine who lives in Texas the other day, saying, hey, you up for a chat? We're in lockdown here in Sydney. She says to me, Oh, just on the hop at the moment. I'm just in Barcelona for work this week. And then I'm in Mexico next week with the family. So let's talk after that. <laughs> and it's like, wow, that's a taste of how the other half are living at the moment. Yeah. Um, when you look at um, the outlook for Australia, the Australian economy, is that an important ingredient in the analysis of some of the stocks that you hold in your portfolio? So some of the stocks that we have in our portfolio are very geared towards the domestic economy. Um, so the, one of the, one of the uh, I guess, unique factors about our fund is the way we group our, our stocks, and that's how we manage these um, systematic you know, macro risks, is we, rather than picking our stocks based on what gigs, like the industry sector they're in, we group stocks based on how the share prices tend to react to certain um, external environment like bond yield changes or the domestic economy. And so we, we have um, groups, we have global cyclicals, for example. So they're the stocks that tend to, to do well when the global economy is going well. And then we have domestic cyclicals, which are the ones that are mainly exposed to what's going on here in Australia. And so companies in, in, that, in that segment would be ones that would be very much geared towards, um, uh, say, like a JB Hi-Fi, very much geared to what the Australian consumer is doing. Um, a company like Corporate Travel would be in the, in the um, growth area because it's growing quickly. A company like Flight Centre, might be in the global cyclical um, area because it's very exposed to people traveling overseas. So, um, so within the domestic cyclical group, um, they're the ones that we're focusing on when we're looking at these local lockdowns. How is it going to impact retailers? Um, how is it going to impact local building stocks, for example? Kelly, when you take a, a short position against a company, is it generally or always because of the, the, the company itself and the, the threat of the environment that, that you think is going to prevail? Or do you sometimes um, look at what the economic outlook might be and then take a set against companies that are, for example, cyclical? Uh, yes, we, we, with our short positions, we are very um, measured in how we do it. Um, we're not a fund that bets the farm on um, a big one big short position based on a thesis that the company's going to go belly up or that there's one big catalyst. It, it, so we, tend, we really try to have a broad range of longs and shorts uh, and our short positions are often, they can be based on anything um, from it's a great company, but it's it's overvalued. And so we, we might take a, a, sh a small short position in that company and think, well, let's just put that money into a long that's better value. It might be that we do see 
um, a structural change in the industry that's going to um, impact their earnings. And, um, you know, so we, we see better value elsewhere. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, there's a lot of different reasons why we, and we'll also take shorts in companies uh, that are good quality companies, but yeah, are just going through a little bit of a, a rough patch. So when you, when you brought up corporate travel, and and I then brought up the subject of shorts. Poor old corporate travel was uh, picked on by an overseas hedge fund um, not long ago, probably a year, year or so ago. And the UK office was a part of that that short problem. And now you're telling us that the, the London office is doing really well. Yeah. Yeah. I must admit, I love that. I love the idea of there being a, a real sheriff that could somehow pick on these hedge funds that tend to create stories that the market overreacts to and can really cause problems for companies. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a very interesting area in terms of um, regulation, um, you know, freedom of speech, um, opinions. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, um, it'll be interesting to see how short those short reports and, and uh, you know, the regulation of those opinions play out. Um, but for now, it's just um, can be quite frustrating when that happens to a company that you know that is, um, is not fraudulent and it's not that the share price suffers anyway. I think Tyro copped the same thing with that Viceroy report that um, they really just seized on a small problem and blew it out of the water. As yeah. a consequence, a lot of shareholders lost value, but the, 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 the share price has effectively rebounded over time. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, and often they, yeah, those reports are, um, you really need to understand the company in detail to really be able to push back on, on the, um, the headline, um, you know, scaremongering um, report, so. One last one, Kelly, before you go. Um, you know, there are those people out there who keep saying, oh, the market's overvalued, the PEs are too high. I often respond, well, you know, historically a lot of companies' PEs are, are so high, but interest rates have never been so low. And when I, I learned about investing, when PEs got to 20, I started getting cautious. But if PEs are 20, it compares to interest rates of about 5%. And that's, that's interest rates are a long way from 5%. That's right, exactly. So, um the headline PEs are looking very um, toppy, but as you say, interest rates are all-time lows, and so mathematically, it makes sense for those the PEs to be high. Um, of course, if we see economic growth speeding ahead and um, reserve banks start to, you know, think about increasing interest rates, which I don't see happening in the short term, but in the long, you know, it, it'll happen eventually. And that will obviously cause a bit of a headwind to, to the stock market. But for now, I think earnings are looking pretty good and um, the reopening, we just got to get people vaccinated and get the, the world back to as close to normal as we can, I think. Okay, so, so when people ask me about, you know, should I remain in the market? And I say, clearly, clearly this is not advice, but from my point of view is that if the market does sell off, it's probably going to be a buying opportunity because this market can go higher with interest rates so low. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and at Sage, we actually offer two options for our. We have two funds: um, one that gives you ex equity exposure, and one that's an absolute return fund. So if you are worried about the market levels in absolute terms, you can invest in in the absolute return fund, which basically just gives you our stock selection uh, returns and that does not expose you to the overall level of the market. So you can still make money when the market's going down. Great stuff. Look, uh, yeah. Kelly, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, a lot of us haven't got foreign stocks in our portfolio and Charlie Aiken is a fund manager from Aiken Investment Management and he actually specialises in looking for foreign companies to put into his fund. So I thought I'd ask Charlie, what are the three companies we really should have in our portfolio? Charlie, thanks for joining us. Thanks to Pete. Good to see you this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Of course, you, you like everybody to invest in your fund, but if they didn't invest in your fund, um, what are the, the top three stocks you think people should be thinking about overseas? Well, obviously, they're, they're most welcome to invest in the fund. And I'm going to recommend stocks that, uh, that we have in the fund, obviously. I mean, we do a lot of work. The team does a lot of work on trying to find great businesses around the world and try and hold them for as long as possible. I think I just want to make one point, Pete. It's really important to hold great businesses for as long as you can. At the moment, people's investment time horizons are the shortest ever. There was a survey the other day that said people, people's expected investment horizon was seven months. I mean, honestly, that is, that is not how you invest. That's, that's trading. So we'd like to buy shares in great businesses, a share in a great business, and hold it for as long as we can. So if we're going to talk about what we do, I'll talk about great businesses because that's that's... That's what we invest in and that's why i think you know people should consider for their own portfolios you know in, to diversify a bit from australian equities so if you've asked me you know what are the top three companies that i think people should have in their portfolio to diversify a little bit away from australia that'd be microsoft louis vuitton moe hennessy and nike would be my three three key businesses just three tremendous global brands that dominate their industry so we can talk about those if you'd like to yeah well this it's just, they're all good companies and they've all done well in recent times. So I guess there are two ways you can do it. You buy these stocks and you realise that they're already priced to perfection, but as things improve, they'll improve. Or you wait until the market really gets scared like they did during the coronavirus and go in and buy them with your ears pinned back. I, I, I just believe you can own them any day of the week, Pete. I think timing the market is a fool's game. How many people have tried to time the market, pullbacks, everyone, no one actually does anything when the markets are bad. They, they scare themselves out of doing things. I mean, this time last year, who really bought much? I mean, you did a bit, I did a little bit, but geez, you had to be, you had to be, it was easy in hindsight, wasn't it? We missed so many other opportunities. This time we did it. But to the younger yeah. investor, you can understand why they didn't. See, with great businesses, I don't believe it's about timing the market. You want to hold them for as long as they can because they can invest in themselves. They generate 
very high returns on their own invested capital. They either buy their own shares back, buy other companies or expand and grow faster than GDP. So you can get cute with it and you might get an opportunity like a pandemic or a GFC, but that's once every 10 years, or you can just own them and own them on a daily basis and not worry about them because they're great businesses with great balance sheets. So I would strongly advise against waiting for the next great pullback. But you can always average into businesses, you know. You don't have to buy them all in one day. You can buy some over a period. That's what we do in the fund. You know, we don't just buy holeless bolus on one day into a stock. We probably average our way into it and just see how we go. So let's start with Microsoft. Just a great business. Just, I mean, simply, as I've said on your show numerous times, the world, the business world and general, and the household world in some ways in, in work from home just can't open for business without its products. You know, if you think about it, you know, Microsoft Teams has been used heavily at the moment. LinkedIn, people are using heavily. There's a new version of Office 365 out. You know, Word, you, know, you think about it, Word, all these, all these different, even, even email we, we use, you know, Outlook. It is just a dominant, dominant business that is brilliantly run, has a great cloud computing business in Azure that's growing like a weed as well. It dominates every facet of IT you can think about in terms of critical business communications and stay in business stay in business software. So it's a wonderful business, wonderful balance sheet, you know, 60 billion of cash on its balance sheet, buys back its own shares, tremendous management. I, I just think it's one of the, well, it's, to me, it's like a critical infrastructure stock. It's, it's like something the world can't operate without. And it's, it has, as far as I can see, as my investment team can see, very, very little competition. So its moat is enormous. Its returns are fantastic. And as a $2 trillion market cap company, it's still growing at 20%. And that's that's just something you don't see very often. So excellent business, you know, and I'd be happy to own that stock, you know, on, at, at the current prices. Okay, your next one is the kind of um, um, business that we hang out with whenever we're in a very good mood. Which one's that, Louis Vuitton? Louis Vuitton, we, we drink their champagne, we buy their, we buy their gifts when we've got lots of money or, or when we're in trouble. Uh, to try and get well, out of it's trouble. Even, it's more interesting, more interesting than that, Pete. Louis Vuitton has been one of the great winners of lockdown, of all things. Now, people were worried that, you know, as travel collapsed and the world shut down, that Louis Vuitton wouldn't sell as much at airports or travellers wouldn't buy anything when they went to Paris or New York or whatever, whatever. Chinese tourists wouldn't buy anything. But what happened was because households were spending no money on travel, they would go and treat themselves on luxuries. So in their home market, they'd go to the Sydney Louis Vuitton store and buy a handbag or buy a pair of shoes or go and buy some champagne. And Louis Vuitton sales rocketed during the during the lockdown as people just wanted to feel good about themselves, buy themselves a buy themselves a gift. Now this is one of the world's great businesses. It obviously dominates luxury across the whole across the whole spectrum. Recently bought Tiffany's, which I think is going to be an excellent acquisition. Tiffany's was a little bit stale. I think they'll they'll turn that around. And you've got to think about Louis Vuitton as almost an exchange-traded fund over luxury goods. You know, if you want to buy just one company that represents all the high-end products of the world and people getting wealthier, remember, post the GFC, I'm sorry, post, post the pandemic, the world has got, the wealthier have got wealthier. House prices are up. Those who own assets have got a lot wealthier, be it shares, be it, be it, in it, be it Bitcoin, goddamn, be it, be it, you know, be it property. So the wealthy have got wealthier and they will spend it on Louis Vuitton products. I think it's an extremely well-run business, huge barriers to entry, huge margins, not much competition and just a wonderful business that will probably continue to grow at, you know, 15 to 20%. And another business that clearly has done well, the lockdowns is... Um... Nike, because everyone's going walking. 
I've walked around my area lately. I'm seeing people who've never walked before. They look like they're, they're from the, the TV show, The Walking Dead. They're looking Correct. around. They're looking around their neighbours. They've never seen things before. There is a bit of that going on, Pete, unfortunately. There's, you know, when you're in your house all day, a two-hour walk sounds like something to do, and we're all doing it. But Nike, Nike, there's two huge trends in Nike. One is the trend to athleisure wear. Right? So I'm wearing a golf shirt speaking to you. It's not a Nike one. I should be wearing a Nike one. But it's the trend to athleisure wear is clear in terms of work from home, in terms of what's acceptable in the office. Now, that that has clearly changed, particularly with the tech industry and things like that. So, you know, athleisure is a huge trend. The other one is Nike is a business transformation story. It is cutting out its wholesalers. It is going direct to its consumers via, via the internet and online, its own online, online, online portals and its own sort of superstore shops. It is really increasing its margins and its profits and its free cash flow by cutting out wholesalers. So you're seeing less and less of uh, Nike selling to wholesalers and more and more of Nike selling straight to the consumer. So if I go to Nike.com, they know my shoe size. They know what I've bought before. They try to upsell me some you know, shirts or shorts or whatever. And they're really increasing their margins and also doing very well in China as well. So Nike to me is, also, is not just athleisure wear trend. It is, it is increasing its margins by going direct to the consumer and cutting out the wholesaler. And that's again, you know, really what Louis Vuitton does. Louis Vuitton, you know, doesn't actually use online, but it doesn't use wholesalers. It controls its entire selling, you know, selling stream via, via its own stores. So Nike to me has been a great one for us, probably continue to be really well-run business, but just great margins, great balance sheet and great cash flow. But okay. they're, 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 these, these, these things, you, I mean, People need to think of these great businesses, including some Australian ones, like property. Like they, you want to own it for as long as you can. You know, if you own a good property, you want to own it for as long as you can. And and I think that that's what people people just think too short term in some of these uh, great great businesses. One last thing before you go: What is the the big issue out there that the market seems um, concerned about or not concerned about? Do you think is worth keeping an eye on? Well, it's obviously the inflation debate. I mean, this time last year, it was what shape was the recovery or whether there was going to be vaccines and all that. Now it's obviously inflation. And one thing we do in the fund is we own businesses with pricing power. Microsoft, Louis Vuitton and Nike have pricing power, the ability to raise their final prices above any input price rises or and, and obviously above CPI, in my view, strongly. Now, the CPI number from America came in up 5% year on year you know, two days ago. A lot of that's a base effect, Pete, from when we're in the worst of the crisis. But if you look at it closely, some of it's driven by used car sales up, you know, used car prices up 40%, lumber prices are up. There's a lot of stuff that I think is possibly transitory. And the good news for equity market investors is the bond market seems to think inflation is transitory as well. US, US 10-year bonds are 1.34%. They were recently 1.8%. So they've come down quite a lot as well. So I, we need to keep a close eye on this inflation picture because central banks obviously react to inflation if it stays high for longer. But a little bit of inflation is very good for the right businesses. You can raise your prices more than the, your input price rises. So we own businesses with pricing power, but we also hedge ourselves by having businesses that have very low debt. Because if interest rates do go up, you don't want highly geared companies. You want lowly geared companies that have the ability to raise their product prices. So. I suppose that's the thing that the market spends a huge amount of time on at the moment. If I, my advice to investors would be keep an eye on it, but don't spend too much time on it. Just own great businesses that have pricing power and low gearing. And I think, well, under most circumstances, that'll, that'll suit you very well. Great education, Charlie. Thanks for joining us.
always, Pete. Good to speak to you. Take care. Well, joining us now is the guy who told us that the Australian dollar would go to the 80 US cents level way when it was in the 50 uh, cent level. Um, and my question is now it's sort of floating, well, no, sinking away from the 80 cent level. Is it going to have a comeback? Will the Aussie dollar go up again? Michael Knox from Morgan's, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Peter. All right. So, question is cut straight for the chase, Michael. Will the Aussie dollar float back up to 80 US cents or more? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, now, if I were to construct a notional model of the Australian dollar, the way uh, uh, many people do it, uh, you would include uh, Australian export commodity prices and you would include interest rates. And indeed, over 20 years of data, you can construct a model which explains 88% of monthly variation of the Aussie dollar if you do it that way. Mm. Uh, there's a similar one in the Reserve Bank uh, uh, bulletin uh, a couple of issues ago in which they look at the terms of trade and interest rates. Um, but um, in our version of it, uh, yes, you would strongly say that it's very highly probable that the uh, Aussie dollar is going to go to 80 cents and higher this financial year. Um, Right now, we've had uh, a rapid uh, escalation of commodity prices. And you can see the series of the uh, commodity prices we used is published every month by the RBA. And the uh, first day of the month, it's the RBA uh, index of export prices. And that's uh, rising very rapidly as it did in the last major commodity spoon. Something we also talked about a year ago. Yep, that's right. And, we, and our, therefore our model rises with that. Okay, so let, let's uh, totally agree that commodity prices have a really solid outlook considering the economic growth numbers right around the world. Um, but what if the US raises interest rates faster than us? Does that put a, a bit of a negative on the rise on the US dollar? Um, well, we think the, the reverse is likely to be the case, but uh, the RBA is in fact intervening in our market with quantitative easing to reduce the level of our uh, long-term interest rates relative to uh, US long-term interest rates. And um, they think that they uh, have the result of reducing rates by 30 basis points, 0.3 or 1% lower than they would otherwise be. So it's the relative rates. But we include those as a model and uh, even including those, uh, those current interest rates with the RBA operating. And we still think the market should be significantly higher. Um, in terms of our model, this, the most recent reading this month is the cheapest that the Aussie dollar has been any time this century. Uh, it is currently 3.14 standard errors too low. Uh, the chances of it going up from here are around about 999.2 chances in a thousand. This is statistically what it is. That it's seems a, pretty high though. It's an extreme, it's an extreme event. Uh, so the question is, why is, why is uh, the US dollar holding up? Uh, because obviously for the um, Aussie dollar to go up, the US dollar has to not just fall about against us, it has to fall amongst a whole lot of things. And 
when we look at the actual market in non-US dollar assets, what we find is that it's led by the euro. And uh, so money has been slow to flow into the euro because they have been slower in uh, getting their population vaccinated uh, than the US has. Well, the US built the built the vaccination program that was uh, Operation Warp Speed built, uh, built last year. And so in the first quarter, the US was vaccinating its population and Europe was just beginning to set up a system of doing that. So you had a very strong negative growth in, uh, in, Ger in the German economy, yet you had a drop in output in the German economy in the first quarter, and that's kept the euro soft. But as we move through the year, uh, the Europeans are getting more and more of their um, population vaccinated. And uh, this is reflected in economic terms in a, uh, a number that's put out by the, uh, by the European Commission, and it's called the Business and Consumer uh, Survey Sentiment, uh, and the most recent one is July. And that's moved from negative territory in the first quarter to the highest level ever measured or the highest level measured in 21 years mm. in the second quarter. <clears throat> so what we think is, as we go through our next financial year, you'll have stronger European growth. That'll generate a rally in the Euro and that'll trigger the rally in the Aussie dollar from this, these very uh, oversold positions. Uh, one last question, mate. Our poor vaccination rates, has that had any impact on our dollar? So what's really important, it, here is uh, our economy is in really good shape. I mean, we've been isolated from the rest of the world and our, our economic growth is really good relative to European economic growth, relative to uh, US economic growth. Um, so uh, uh, it's their vaccination rate has stopped their economic, uh, the European slow economic vaccination rate has meant slow US economic growth we're not so closely connected here in Australia. Yeah, okay, Matt. As always, thanks for joining us, and we hope you're right. Thank you, Peter. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, joining us now is the founder of Century 21, Charles Tarby. Charles, how are you going? Good, thank you, Peter. Uh, I always like to check out the, um, the coalface. I can read statistics any old time. <laughs> Uh, but you did a few, a few months ago a uh, tip that you saw the market was starting to slow down. Mm. What do you Tell us what you've seen over that period of time and how is the state of the market right now? Well, it's really interesting, actually. There are some areas of the marketplace that, that's absolutely still going crazy, and that's generally due to the shortage of stock. Uh, and that's pretty much it. If you look at the clearance rates, they're in the 70s as an average, which they were in the 80s, and then sometimes are up in the 90s. So they've progressively come down to the mid-70s now for the last probably four, five, six weeks uh, pre-COVID. Uh, even during the, the weekend, Sydney had some a pretty solid auction number, and they still had a good clearance rate because a lot of the agents have learned to do the auctions online. A lot of vendors have pulled out, but 
they they still managed to get 566 auctions away. Uh, and, you know, oh, sorry, 661 auctions away, and they had a clearance rate of 76.5%. So, I mean, it's still pretty solid, mm. but it's not what we were experiencing. So that slowdown has occurred. And we've gone from that fear of missing out in a lot of the areas now, people I talk to, that fear of paying too much. And, and that coupled with the fact that the language coming out of the banks and the RBA is definitely changing. That 2024 that the RBA talked about with the interest rates, and then it jumped to maybe 2023, and then CBA came out and said November 2022, just recently. Uh, and and from, from the 1st of June through to when I did a, a seminar for, for our, our network on the 23rd of June, just before the latest outbreak started uh, up uh, in the Hunter Valley, I, I've, I showed them the changes in language from the 1st of January to the 23rd of January. It was stunning, the change in language. And I've, all, I've long held the belief that there's, there has to be some action. Uh, you saw the action happening in New Zealand. You saw the fact that the investors outweighed the number of, uh, in terms of borrowing, outweighed the number of uh, normal first-home and second-home buyers, which is why the New Zealand government slapped uh, a change, an immediate change, 40% deposit required by investors, et cetera, et cetera. You saw the graph in terms of investor numbers. It just went crazy. So they've stepped in. And I believe that somewhere here in this country, they'll need to step in at some point because even though it's not as crazy as it was, there's still that concern that first-home buyers are not getting an opportunity. Right. To, to what effect... Is the slowdown in auctions uh, a lockdown effect in Sydney? Uh, and I guess you, the way to look at that would be, well, is it slowing down in Melbourne and Adelaide and, and Brisbane? Well, no, Melbourne, you know, interestingly enough, you know, normally Melbourne would be the premier place uh, and it's still performing well. It had a 75.3% clearance rate for 1,077 auctions. So, you know, that's still pretty good. And it was 79.9 last week, 79.5.9 the week before. And that is a steady marketplace. And that's what we like. We like that. What we don't like is Canberra, for instance. It's been up in the 90s consistently. And it dropped down in the early 80s, but it's jumped back up again. Uh, but that's the sort of marketplace we don't like. I know it sounds silly, but from a real estate perspective, uh, the majority of agents, uh, the, the good agents, actually don't like booms. We like a steady marketplace where everybody gets an opportunity to negotiate a position. Hmm. Tell me, Charles, do you think a lot of people are now starting to, if they could physically, turn up to an auction because they now think they're a chance where, say, three or six months ago, a lot of people were just getting so dis disgruntled, they just weren't, weren't even showing up. No, and, and there are agents, uh, lots of agents trying different things around the traps. There's an agent... Uh, in, in the area I live in, uh, and I wasn't comfortable with their process. My daughter was out looking at buying property, and it was, I'll get people through, and it'll be an off-market, it'll be a, a, a you know, a, a VIP invitation, which I think is wrong in itself, because if you're trying to sell somebody's property, you expose it to everybody, not just a certain number of people on your database. And then these people will come out. My daughter would go out to these houses. They'd see that she was interested. And then she'd get a text that night saying, tomorrow morning by 10 a.m., your best offer. And um, I, I just think that there's been a significant number of, of um, introduction of ways to list and sell real estate. 
the auction is the most transparent because everybody can stand there and bid on the day. Uh, but you're right, and, and that's changing though, Peter. The amount of stock, this is the other thing. Normally, as we come into winter, the stock levels just start to decline very heavily. What's happened with the stock levels is that they've come up and they're levelling. So you've got a, where you might have had a decline of 5 or 10% over this time last year, it's like 0.23% less than this time last year and 0.15%. That's the sort of changes that we're seeing. So the stock levels coming in are stronger for this winter than they, than they were this time last year. So change is definitely afoot. It just needs to happen a little bit quicker. Do you think that um, someone's better off selling their property now or waiting for spring? If you, if you feel as though the market's coming off the boil a little bit, will it be uh, you know, less attractive for a seller in November? The best way I could answer that, Peter, is to let you know that um, my son uh, spoke to me about selling his investment property. Just did he do it now? So uh, I think that the more stock levels climb, uh, the, the, the uh, less uh, negotiable uh, the buyers become, as you can well, well imagine. And so I think while there's a limited stock in certain areas, this is your opportunity to sell. When I speak to the agents out there in the greater majority, in the greater majority, I'm getting that view that it's getting harder to sell something. They're doing more inspections with the same buyer. Uh, they're getting an offer. Uh, it's not like people are rushing in and making crazy offers. So it has changed. And if, if real estate agents come out of COVID in Sydney and we go through what we've been through in the past where it dips and then it spikes and they start thinking they're still in a boom, they're going to be in trouble if they don't recognise that and I, the, the, the title of my topic at the conference was history repeats itself for those who are unwilling to learn from the past. And I think if people don't learn from the past and recognise that we're in a cycle and that cycle will change, if they start increasing their uh, um, debt levels, if they don't renegotiate their loans with their banks for longer terms, because you don't want to come out of, out of a, a loan in two years' time and find that you're up 2%. Because um, when I, I did a a chart that said, here's a 10% loan at $650,000. And, and if, it, if it went up to 12%, it's a 19.98% increase, 2% climb. But if you're on 3% today and you go to 5%, that's a 59% increase in your repayments. I mean, and a lot of people are not really in tune with that. And so I think the banks have started to work it out. And if you want to buy a property, they might give you a loan at 4%, but they're qualifying you at 6 and if you can't afford it at six, they're not giving you money. Yeah. Charles, I recently, yeah, I recently interviewed um, a professor of um, law, a law pro a, a property lawyer. Um, I'm, sorry to, I'm sorry to bring your show down to, down yeah. to my level, Peter, you know, yeah, no, professor no. to a real estate agent. Yeah, no, I, I, look, I, I, I have to suffer the, 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 <laughs> the low, the low lives of my life. Anyway. Um, but And I asked her the question because she was talking about the problems. A lot of the, the new developments in the apartment uh, area have lots of defects compared to the old days. Mm. And I, I finished off the interview by saying to her, what's the advice you give to someone who's going to buy a new apartment? And she has said, don't. Yeah. I, I think Are you worried about the calibre of new, of new apartments for lots of developments? I think what's happened, Peter, is that when a development gets pre-sold and it gets pre-sold quickly, quite often the, 
quality of that uh, development changes because it's all sold. So what you might see and what you might get could be two different things. Um, this is why it's really, really important to work with reputable builders that have been around, a little bit a good track record and they know what they're doing because you will get that change. You also have an issue with apartments in that there are some, uh, when I looked at the stats last, 46,000 in Sydney, 42,000 in Melbourne were being constructed in and around December of last year. Now, as these come through, and we don't have the overseas buyers, we don't have the overseas students, there's going to be a lot of that property that's going to come on the market. And there's also going to be the people that I thought about this morning when I knew I was going to talk to you that might have purchased off the plan a year and a half or two years ago from overseas. Are they going to come and complete? Are the banks going to call for a valuation one month before settlement, which is not abnormal? And are the valuers going to be too scared to take it to the price that the people bought it at? So that area is really grey for me right now. And, and I think that it could be a very big opportunity for uh, future investors yeah. and home buyers, first home okay. buyers. So one last question, Charles. If there are those out there who think that we'll be um, vaccinated pretty effectively by the end of this year, because the government's going to really try and push Pfizer at a rate of knots. If that happens, and we've got students coming back by the middle of next year, would your view on the real estate market, and particularly if even travellers start coming back, would your view on the property market get a little bit better than it is now? Uh, look, it will get better, but remembering it's got very, it's got very bad in some areas. If I looked at the rentals, when I looked at 20 locations, 20 suburbs that have gone backwards in terms of their rental income, of the 20 suburbs, two of them were in Sydney and 18 of them were in Melbourne. In the apartment arena, it was negative 23% in terms of rental uh, income compared to this time last year. So, yes, it, it, it'll get better, but it might just be a catch-up. Mm. There's a lot of real estate age. Sorry. And in the interim period, there's probably a buying opportunity. Yeah, look, there's a lot of real estate agents that have their valuations based on rental income and management income fees. So uh, based on the fact that rents have dropped significantly, so too is the value as the asset of the real estate practitioner. So there's a few changes in, within our industry that people need to look at across the board. Uh, but uh, I, I haven't had the, the uh, AstraZeneca, Astra, <laughs> I haven't had the injection, I can't even say it, because, look, um, some of my friends reckon that the, the injection would die in my body anyway and I wouldn't get a chance. So I don't know how you're going with it. <laughs> All right, Charles, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us, mate. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Peter. And that's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us. If you want to follow up on some of the stocks we've talked about today or in the past, go to the Switzer Report at switzerreport.com.au where you get an extensive analysis of the stocks that we like and our experts like as well. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.